Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Deanne Smith and uh, they've been a friend of mine for many years and I really enjoy their comedy. If you have a chance to see any of their specials, I highly recommend it. This episode we spoke about relationships, exes, doing comedy about relationships and about your exes and to your exes, uh, which Deanne does uh, experimentally and... I I just think it's a fascinating topic. I think it's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoy having it. Uh, How are you enjoying season two of Tea with Alice so far? I'm finding it um, tricky to get back into the swing of putting out episodes every week, but I'm enjoying doing the conversations so much. I'm enjoying having this part of my brain back. I'm enjoying having this kind of area of of conversation available to me again though of course the tea with our salons on the patreon um provide something of that to me as well if you want to support this podcast or join the tea with alice salons patreon.com slash alice fraser is the place to go i also do weekly writers meetings and workshops so you can either come on and write with me or we can also do uh, workshop sessions where we break down our work a little bit and, and show show each other our work. Uh, that's sort of a small group thing that I've been really enjoying very much. I also do one-on-one consultations um, via calendly.com slash tea with Alice, where you can um, do a consultation with me, if that's a thing that you would like to do. I will stop plugging my things, although Twist, my new show, my new solo show, will be at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, then in Tokyo, then in London, then in Edinburgh. You can find all of that at alicefraser.com, and I'll let you get on with listening to the show. Um, also, I do another podcast, a silly fun podcast, called The Gargle, and uh, that's a thing that you can get every week. Uh, please share this show with your friends, or anything that you like of mine, really. That's the, the best support you can give. Uh, other than you know patreon <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna stop talking uh, enjoy listening to deanne smith you're having tea with alice hi and welcome to the podcast you're having tea with alice uh who are you and what are you drinking my name is deanne smith right now i'm drinking water and Excellent. in general alice i'm getting into cocktails and we should talk about it wow water or as i call it pre-tea uh, is an extremely <laughs> refreshing beverage. Tear fuel. So your your way is much nicer, actually. <laughs> but less Why are you getting life. into cocktails? What about cocktails do you enjoy? Okay. First of all, I know that I'm extremely late to this. Um, as most of my friends are becoming sober, I'm like, let's drink, uh, which is never anyone I've ever been. Um, but I did a show in Canada this summer called With a Twist, where they had me hosting the show where I was teaching other comedians how to make cocktails. So we'd like make cocktails and then talk about comedy. And I got into it. I, I, it's a thing now for me. That's exciting. Yeah. So you've become a, I mean, people can't see this because this is audio, but you've become a chin-up bar and cocktail guy. <laughs> I mean, it's rebranding for Deanne Smith in 2023. Um, yes, Alice knows that uh, behind me in the Zoom is my chin-up bar. I, I, Which I love. I love that as a sign yeah. of strength coming into a Zoom. Like I know some people who like <laughs> elaborately choreograph their Zoom backgrounds. As you can see, mine is just chaotic. You can't see, listener, but Deanne can see. But yeah, some people really like select the books in the bookshelves behind them and they kind of make a yeah. whole thing. So yeah, you've got the dominant 
expression of like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like the way you're breaking this down. I mean, I am just in my kitchen, but yes, what I do want you to know is that can I, I can afford a microwave and I, <laughs> I got a chin-up bar. Let me also say though, if we're going to get into backgrounds, let's describe yours. I don't think it's chaotic at all. I think it's lovely. It's homey. It's cozy. You have a beautiful rug. I'm looking at a beautiful rug. I'm looking at a bookcase. Framed photographs. Do you understand how not chaotic that is? To print out, to have a printed photo and then in a frame and then displayed there's so many levels of organization there well thank you I appreciate it this this rug was a factory uh, a floor floor sale do you have that thing where you go into a shop and you're like I can't afford your products but this one that you have left for other people to walk on I'll take that absolutely yeah I bought that during my nesting phase pre-baby which was like I need to after traveling being on the road I was in like a place for a little while and I was like I need to have a place that feels comfortable Mm-hmm. For, for the baby having, but also that a baby can throw up on. Uh, so that was my yeah. that was my selection process for the furnishings. I hear that the nesting phase is real, by the way, and I know that you know you've taken a break from the podcast because you felt like all you had to talk about was parenting stuff and it wasn't interesting. But I think it is interesting. I lived with a a, a roommate that was pregnant and then had a baby, and that nesting thing is real. Oh yeah. She, man just rearranged everything it was like every day like just new stuff she was compelled it wasn't even it didn't even totally make sense other than like some deep evolutionary drive yeah and that is one of the the extraordinary and interesting things about parenting I mean there's so many things that I find interesting about it and I think other people would find interesting about it but then of course I think that so I then I question myself of like but 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 yeah just the fact that you are sort of suddenly full of these instincts and how and then you kind of reflect on the way in which society kind of rejects instincts as a way of doing things rejects the drive of instincts or tries to sublimate it or tries to ignore it even though so much of what we do is driven by instinct and not accepting that means you're often blinded to why you're doing a thing like aggression or or desire or you know yeah, I really want to do this job and it's not. It's just that the guy there was hot. You know, like all of those things. <laughs> yeah, I think about that a lot. I was, um, oh man, I mean, I, I want to give credit to this idea, but it makes me sound so cheesy. But there's this tarot reader that I really love called Jessica Dore, who has a book. And she melds like psychological ideas with the symbolism of tarot cards. And I've been ruminating about the magician card recently. And she talks about magic. Basically, she talks about the basic human instinct being uh, maximum pleasure for the least amount of effort. Like, that's our operating system. And that you need to understand that that's operating in the background at all times. Like, that is what drives a lot of your decision making or, um, you know, actions. So her idea with the, tar- with the magician card of the tarot is that true magic is first of all acknowledging that that's your drive and then doing anything you can to interrupt that. Um, anytime you step, step in the way of trying to get like maximum pleasure for minimal effort, you're, you're alchemizing, you're doing something magic. So it's an interesting thing because I'm not a subscriber to things like astrology or tarot, but I can see the ways in which they are incredibly useful from my perspective as a non-believer mm-hmm. is that they let you acknowledge and check into these subliminal urges and subliminal drivers that are happening and these kind of background movers 
where if you believe that you're all just conscious input and conscious calculation and processing, you're going to ignore that background tidal shit that's moving you in like immense kind of irresistible ways so that if you can actually kind of look at that through whatever framing it is, whether it's astrology, whether it's tarot, actually those tools then become really useful because if you don't have logical framings for them, which you don't, it's sort of impossible to frame them logically, you kind of need another set of tools to address them. Either you get really good at articulating these kind of inchoate urges or you use these other kind of pre-existing frameworks. That's my feeling yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah, no, you're definitely onto something. I also think it's cute that you said as a non-believer. I wouldn't say that I'm like a believer <laughs> either when it comes to like, oh, this tarot card told me to do this thing. But it is a very interesting way to check in, I think, with like what your own instincts. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm losing words right now, but what's going on with you like subconsciously, right? Like you draw a card and you're like, oh, that feels scary. Okay, well, why does it feel scary? Are you like afraid of the future? You know, what's going yeah. on? Um, but I, I think all that stuff is useful. Like it's, you know, symbols that we've carried through human history for, I don't know how long, hundreds of years, thousands of years. And it's the same story over and over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to get all Jordan Peterson-y about it, but... Uh, oh no, I don't know enough about him to know like what kind of territory we're wading into. What's what's his idea I'll, of the same story over and over? I mean, this is the kind of the school of philosophy that he subscribes to is kind of about these dreams and stories that are kind of shared among people and these characters and and figures that keep recurring. So, for example, you know, you take this idea I'm that so the, the feminine <laughs> urge is sort of chaotic and artistic and generative and the masculine urge is orderly and aggressive and then the woman becomes the dragon figure in the story because that's the chaotic figure and okay. then it becomes women are dragons who want to suck, you know, it's, it's, it's sort yeah, of yeah. Um, the way that the direction in which he takes it or the direction, I think actually a lot of what he says is quite specific to this school of philosophy and he's, but it can so easily be interpreted in a way um, that is like women are evil that I think he kind of owes it to his audience to either educate them in the kind of academic roots of his discussions or shut the fuck up until you can yeah, express absolutely. it in a way that people understand. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, luckily, I don't know enough about him. I know that he, I think he teaches in Toronto. That's pretty much all I know and that. That, that I don't want to know more. Oh, look, he, he says, like, genuinely 90% just, like, sensible stuff. Pull your socks up, keep your room clean, look after the people around you. That'll make you happier than just self-indulgence, right? And then the rest is, like, sort of Judeo-Christian imagery filtered through this, like, Lacanian substrate. <laughs> like, aimed at his ex-wife, Stephanie, or something. I don't know that he has an ex-wife <laughs> or what her name is, but I bet there's a, I bet there's, a, you know... He feels spurned in some way. Yeah. I, you also, Watch you just out. used a word that I, I don't know. Like, I, uh, Lacan is one of these like dream theorists. I think that's I think he's a, a, a dream theorist of that school. It's it's one of those. It's there's like the Freudian and the Lacanian and the Jungian. Jungian, that's the one. Not Lacanian. Okay. He's Jungian, I think. I saw somebody do a sick burn on Twitter the other day, which says like, "What's the worst <laughs> criticism of Jungian?" Um, theory and it's the, the the criticism was that Jordan Peterson is a coherent Jungian oh no sick burn I'm not here yeah. to attack him like I think he's actually quite good for some people so there are some people who find him like really useful as a self-help guy um, which is sort of what he was originally and then he got pushed 
rightwards by the inexorable tides of the internet. Yeah. Oh, no. Which is, you know, I feel sorry. I, like, I genuinely feel sad. That's a sad thing that happens, I think. I don't know enough about him to, to, to talk at all. But I'm like, did he get pushed or is he like a bad actor with, you know? I tend not to attribute malice to what can be like like chaos or self-interest or like there seems to be a mechanic, right, that happens where these particularly academic guys who really privilege like discourse and, and debate and they want to have a debate and, and free speech, but, you know, free speech in a very constrained and safe place where it's one person talks and then the other person talks and you have a back and a forth and then if somebody has a point, you go, oh, I acknowledge your point. That sort of clean debate is how they frame their ideas and how they form their ideas and how they correct their ideas. And the internet doesn't work like that. So you say something dumb in the context of like an academic debate, someone will counterpoint you and like give you examples and reasons why you're wrong and then you might go away and re-examine your thoughts. You say something dumb on the internet, thousands of people tell you you're a Yeah. And it's impossible to process that (laughs) like it's impossible to go oh who here has a good point you just go these people are attacking me and then you get defensive and then you move towards the people who are nice to you which sort of leads to this tidal shift right because the right wing is like yeah sure say whatever the fuck you want we don't care they definitely seem like more fun than the left you know more welcoming of of people um but really truly knowing nothing but i think jordan peterson talks shit about trans people like all these guys do Mm. so let me i'm just gonna put on the record i don't like that guy at all fuck that guy oh no i don't like him at all either but i do think it is a kind of a i don't like macbeth he killed his king (laughs) but i also acknowledge him as a tragic figure right yeah yeah no i hear you i hear you i think it's a it's a it's a tragic thing to watch somebody who has talent and intelligence get driven into self-indulgence and pettiness and hatred and like whining because it's just it's just a waste of a brain you know yeah i think we're back to you being a mom i think we're tapping into this kind of like generosity it's like you're floating above (laughs) the world with a with a you know magnanimous spirit kind of uh well hoping for the best in everybody I seeing hope, their potential yeah. everybody was once a tiny little baby well i have to believe i have to believe that it's not fate i have to believe that people aren't just born assholes you know i have to believe yeah. that there's something that i can do that society can do that we can all do to help each other be better people to help each other kind of get there because if I don't believe that why am I bothering to parent my child you know no absolutely yeah parents especially now I mean probably truly throughout the course of human history but uh we're just we're we're just in the now I feel like you have to really be tapped into hope and you have to like be creating the future you you, it's you can't just be well well it's the apocalypse I get whatever anything goes it's like no 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 guys we gotta pull this thing right yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'll, I'll try and teach my kid to read and write and do maths and maybe a language, but I'll also try and teach her how to, like, hotwire a car and maybe do Brazilian <laughs> jiu-jitsu. Like. Yeah. Well, yeah, what are some other skills you, that you think are pretty important for her to have? Languages are great. Languages are good, I think. Strong physical body, yes. Str- strong physical body and confidence. Um, assertiveness, I think. Yeah. Um, particularly as uh, uh, she's currently a girl baby, I think. That's a 
an important thing. That's the most, actually the most correlated data-wise with um, lower rates of sexual assault is just being able, when things start to go a little wrong, Mm -hmm. just go, ah, I'm out, actually, you're weird. Being able to say that without kind of feeling uh, that socialisation to be... Yeah, well, it... It helps that society is shifting a bit too, right? Like there was only so much parents could do and they weren't even thinking along those lines like decades ago. But all of society is conspiring to teach women, you know, to be polite and go with the flow and don't offend anybody and smile. And it's going to, of course it feels weird. That's what men are like, you know? (laughs) So like my, one of my best friends has, her girl's grown up now, but when she was little, um, she blew my mind because she went to go take a picture with Santa. She was like three years old and she'd been raised in this way. Right. So she just asserted her own boundaries. Her mom was like, okay, we'll go get our picture with Santa. And she was like, I don't feel comfortable sitting on Santa's lap. I'm going to stand next to Santa. And it was like, yes, girl. And it was like, in my day, we d- they just chucked us on a lap, took pictures while we were crying. It was a big fun joke for the whole family. And it just felt like, oh, yeah, there's all these little moments along the way. Do they wear real gloves in <laughs> Canada, the Santas? Or do they wear those thin sort of polyester gloves? Like the little whitey gloves? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. those are the creepiest fucking things in the world. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They are mascots wear them, Santas wear them. The warm touch of squishy human flesh through that like thin polyester cotton glove is the worst feeling you can inflict on a child. I hate it. You've really nailed a detail. You're not wrong. This is not something that was on my radar at all. I loathe it. I loathe it. I have a a real resentment towards that. That's the only place I can... You're right, mascots, but I really can't think of another place that I've seen those gloves except Santa's. I think butlers wear them, but butlers don't touch you. (laughs) Butlers wear them to, like, disapprovingly run their finger along the mantelpiece for dust. Unless it's a very special butler. (laughs) Not that I have that much to do with butlers, but I've seen them in movies, and that's what they do. They've got their finger-running glove hand. Do you have examples of stuff you've done with your daughter um, to help help teach her assertiveness? I mean, at the moment, she has no problem with that. She's 15 months old, so she's learning. Oh, yeah, yeah. she's on it. So you're just not interrupting it. Basically, I'm... There are two things that I'm trying not to do. One is to get really angry with her if she's expressing her will, even if it's inconvenient to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this school of parenting that's probably a little bit more hippie-ish than mine, which is called gentle parenting, which is you never get angry with them. You never, you kind of, you negotiate everything. Yeah. Um, so that's where you see the parents in the in the supermarket being like, Jaden, Jaden, put the knife down. Jaden, Jaden, <laughs> stop stabbing your sister. Jaden, yeah. you know, <laughs> make, good, make good choices with the knife. Yeah, so I think, you know, there is room for stop. Like, stop it. You have to take my word for it. And I think that's a safety thing, right? So we practice, you know, go, 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 stop. Hilarious game. But it means that if she's at the edge of the stairs and I'm too far away to grab her, I can go stop. And yeah. hope that there's a chance that she's not going to fling herself off the edge of a thing. But, yeah, trying to not shut down on her emotionally if she's upset and let her express herself and give her yeah. the tools to express herself. What's wrong? Tell me what's happening. I saw a quite a good one on um, parenting Instagram the other day that I think I might try and implement a bit later, which is um, not stranger danger, 
because stranger danger is not really a thing, actually, uh, but strange behaviour. You're much more likely to be assaulted or harassed or sexually abused by someone you know and are familiar with. So it's actually not useful to teach your child to be afraid of strangers. And I... I like community. I like the community of people that smile at my baby. I want people to feel welcome to smile at my baby or pick up her hat if she drops it or, you know, the the kindness I received from people in the community when I was a kid running around, mum was sick, people next door would give us biscuits. Like that was part of my growing up. And I, you know, when we were in Burma as kids, people just carry us off and feed us. And, you know, it was like that I think is nice actually. It's the kind of the neighbor who you know who starts doing something strange and tells you to keep it a secret that's actually the real danger. So I think as she gets more words, trying to teach her, like, that's strange behavior and tell me about that when that happens. If there's something that's a bit weird happening, tell me about it. I think that's a useful tool to have and, and to be able to call that out and have have words that go that made me feel uncomfortable so things like yeah your your friend's kid who said uncomfortable as like having that as part of your of your vocabulary knowing what that feeling is being tapped in enough to yourself to go oh this doesn't feel right and being able to then tell mummy i think is yeah is that um that's a that's yeah the a idea really of, awesome of that idea is good yeah, I'm also thinking about how wonderfully manipulative children can be, though, and I'm picturing the super smart kid that's like, I don't want to eat this. It feels uncomfortable. <laughs> it doesn't feel yeah. good to my body. And you're like, God damn it. This is not what I'm talking about. Ch- yeah, children are ruthless. <laughs> like, they're so yeah. brutal. Um, yeah, I think that's just the thing of figuring it out um, as we go and, and trying to remember what it was like for me as a kid I don't know. I, I, it's a thing. That, it's a genuine concern. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I've been thinking about all this kind of stuff lately, like um, just how different the parenting is around feelings. I feel like, I mean, I don't know exactly what your background is. I, I think maybe you had a different, slightly different upbringing than me where maybe you were more in touch with your feelings or meant to talk about your feelings more. Um, oh, you're smiling and saying no. Um, then maybe we're, you know, just in the same generation in the same pocket. But I feel like the the default in our generation was really, it was kind of normal. Like you're crying and your parents will be like, I'll give you something to cry about. And you're like, oh, it's like you're crying and you're like met with this threat of physical violence, whether or not they actually do it. And these days it's like, like I was visiting a friend and um, reading a story with her little girl that was called like the whole book was called feelings are fine or something. And it was, it had all these like illustrations and expressions and you were meant to pick out the expressions and talk about different feelings. And I'm realizing now as I'm telling you, I have a joke about it. So I don't want to go into the joke, but one of the (laughs) things that I say is like, I was learning like in real time from this book. I'm like, wait a minute, feelings are fine? What the fuck? Um, So it's just so interesting for me to realize like, or just notice the difference between how kids are being raised today by our generation and how we were raised and thinking about how our parents were raised. I mean, things are changing pretty quickly in that realm. It's really interesting to me. So for me, it's fascinating. I noticed a thing in myself the other day that I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because mum was sick, she had hypercute reactions to sound. So if we were whinging or whining or crying, she would just put us out, out of the car, out Mm. of the door. Um, (laughs) My dad had a Holocaust survivor 
mother who was an adrenaline junkie and so she would say whatever came to her head and if she lost her temper she would scream and throw things so his Mm -hmm. reaction to high emotional stakes was to give us the cold shoulder like if we were in trouble he wouldn't be angry at us he wouldn't shout at us he never raised his voice to us in our whole childhood he just would be silent Mm -hmm. and you would have to figure out what you had done wrong um and so the other day, uh, my baby was doing something incredibly annoying. And my immediate instinct, she came to me for a hug. My immediate instinct was no hug for you. And I, then I gra- grabbed her immediately. and was like, no, I'm not going to do, do that. Yeah. I'm not going to be that person because it wasn't good, right? It wasn't, I mean, my parents did the absolute best that they could. And I honor them for that. But... The fact is that now, as an adult, when I'm confronted with big emotions, I freeze. And I don't think that's useful. No, it's really important to notice that, though. And kind of connected to your idea of having, you know, looking at things from a bigger perspective and having compassion for, let's say, the Jordan Peterson types who get pushed in this direction or who have talent is... I think about, though, that we our responses came from somewhere and they were adaptive to us at the time, right? And they, yes. did, they did the job they were supposed to do and kept us alive and helped us survive. And then, um, you know, as we become adults or as you start to parent or, you know, it's like, okay, they're not adaptive anymore. We need to change them. But they're not, they weren't necessarily bad. They were just us trying to do our best. Yeah, I, I am really happy that when my mom died, I don't remember ever being cruel to her, even in my teenage years, because Mm -hmm. we always knew that she was sick. We always knew that we needed to look after her. We always knew that she could die. And that meant that even when I was angry, I would suppress it and keep it on the inside. And that's probably, you know, in its own way damaging. But I am, I'm glad because I have this thing to show for it or thing to have in my, in my heart for it. Um, But equally, I know that that's not how I, I want my daughter to be able to go, I hate you and slam the door. I want her to have that ability and, and safety and comfort because I didn't do it in part because I was afraid, afraid of hurting yeah. her, afraid of, of making her illness worse. Um, I didn't know what would happen if I, if I hurt my parents. And I think what you want for your child is to feel safe enough that they know they can hurt you and it's okay. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Like, yeah, and the, the, the rupture and repair. Yeah, that's super important. And yeah. it wasn't a thing that I was equipped with for a very long time. I used to nanny a lot, and it was fascinating to see. Like, I, there's this little girl, Matilda, who was like two when we were hanging out. She was so lovely. And I would see her every day, you know, nine to five. And she was a real sweetheart, really well-behaved all day. And um, then when her mom came home, she would inevitably melt down. Like the first 30 minutes her mom was home, she was absolutely just crying, you know, kicking it up. And the thing was, I think, is that she felt safer with her mom, obviously, and had been, I think, repressing these little two-year-old feelings all day. And then when mom came home, ah, okay, I can let it out now. Um, But it, it didn't, you know, it looked like, oh, she's upset that mom's home, but I think it was really like it's safety and comfort that mom's home now. And, yeah, uh, or upset get that all mom these big feelings was out. gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which is, yeah, it's an interesting thing, that idea of kind of a delayed reaction mm-hmm. held up. So what have you been wrestling with? 
I mean, all this shit, Alice. Um, <laughs> what have I been wrestling with? Um, I mean, we'll get into it and then we'll see how much I feel that I can publicly share because, uh, you know, there's always other people involved, but I'm always just thinking about relationships, obsessed with relationships. I mean, romantic relationships especially, but that's now um, expanding to include all kinds of relationships. Um, Last, or two summers ago, in in 2021, I ended up taping a special in Canada that was um, about relationships with an audience of my exes. Now, it was still kind of pandemic time, so I could only get, like, the most recent exes that were still in Canada there. But I had four exes in the room, and it was a a crowd of about 100 people. So they were sick. They were 4% of the the crowd. (laughs) And uh, it was, like... It was really interesting. I'm, I'm proud of having done it. It was a. It is a premise that makes everybody go what when they first That's hear amazing. it. amazing. Yeah, the execution I feel like was a little so-so in part because it was like pandemic. It was 2021. I hadn't. Uh, I I ran the show like twice before I did it. Literally the day before I did it, and then I did it. And I'm like, here yeah. it is. You know, ideally it would be something I would have been like touring for a year or something. Um, but I can't. Did you have cameras on the exes in the audience? Or? Oh, that would have been a great idea. We, I did inter- them, interview them a little bit afterwards. So okay. at the end of the whole special, they pop up and, and they can say some things. Um, I also called out to them during the special. So they had their chance to kind of woo and, and respond. Um, and I kind of thought like, okay, I'll do this big thing and get it out of my system. I've always talked about like being or noticed that I'm like obsessed with relationships and it's not out of my system. I just want to, I just want to keep going and explore all of this stuff. Like, um, just today, this this will it'll be months before it launches. But I've been kicking around this idea for a long time about there's no podcast out there yet called Bad Boundaries, which blows my mind. So that's going to be my lane. And I reached out to my most recent ex to write a theme song for it. And Excellent. I reached out to my ex's ex's ex, who's my friend to do the logo for it. <laughs> it's like, I just can't get out of this idea of like, I don't know, just wanting to rehash things or go into seemingly kind of taboo conversations or well, it's such a exes, taboo. relationships. Exes is this such is a what, taboo. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of, the, I think it's such a tragedy because if it's a good relationship, you got into it because you liked each other. You know, it's not just that you wanted to bone. Presumably there was something about each other that you found attractive and interesting. And then just because you break up, it's such a loss of this time that you invested, of this energy that you invested, of of the third party between you that is the relationship that's only built by sort of mutual inward pressure. It's a kind of a, one of those arches that's only supported by itself thing. And then when one of you moves away or the other one moves away, the whole thing collapses. But like... yeah. I like the idea of a of a second life for a relationship. I one of the biggest sort of tragedies of my life is that I I didn't get to be friends with someone after the kind of romantic relationship ended. We you know we had a conversation afterwards that was sort of like, "Oh yeah, we can be friends again." And and then they died. Um mm. so that was like yeah, just a heartbreak. Absolutely. Yeah, that's an incredibly hard thing. Because I don't think we should ever have been romantically involved uh, at all. Um, we, we should have just been friends. And so we lost mm-hmm. that opportunity to be friends because of 
doing that wrong. Like, it, yeah, that's, I still think about that a lot, actually. Yeah, I, of course you would. I mean, uh, again, not to get too woo-woo, but, I mean, I hear you, but also because it's the way that it went down, I, I don't feel like it can be wrong, you know? You were in each yeah. other's lives and you shared something, and hopefully, ultimately, that's a good thing. Um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that I knew them. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a great thing. So do you, when you talk about relationships or when you talk about relationships with your exes, do you ask for consent beforehand or do you have a kind of a policy that you go into relationships with saying, I'll talk about you, but I'll keep you anonymous? <laughs> or like, is it oh, like... that's so interesting. Yeah. Well, I think like in my standup, I haven't talked, I don't feel like I've talked too much about relationships in general, or that's not really my lane when I'm doing standup. If I did have a joke uh, about or kind of with someone I'm dating, I always clear it with them. And they're never, you know, the butt of the joke or the point of the joke. Like, now that I'm talking it through, like, I did have a real viral moment years ago with this uh, straight guys should step up their game. And that came from dating someone who had only dated... I, in the joke, I say had only dated men, but the truth is she had only dated one man. I just didn't want to call this one man out particularly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I made it more general. And I was just kind of like, you know, straight guys, you got to do better because, like, the bar is so low. I do really basic shit, and it's blowing her mind, you know? And that that was something that, when it came out years ago, really struck a chord with people, um, you know, queers and straight people passing it around, being like, what the hell? But... That was more kind of like a general idea that came from a relationship I was in. Yeah, see, I never talk about my romantic or sexual relationships on stage. That was a, a going in to stand up when I started. Mm-hmm. I think it was a thing that I saw a lot of female comedians talking about. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to do that. There was a lot of, when I came into the scene, there was a lot of my boyfriend this or my husband this or why am I single? And I just thought, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be that kind of comedian. And so I just set this kind of arbitrary rule that that wasn't the comedian I was going to be. And it's sort of interesting now to sort of reflect on that as a, a thing that means that if something happens in my private life in that way, I have to find a way to translate it into a more general kind of point. So it's not showing behind the curtain yeah I mean I think that's a that's not a bad way to go in general I'm I'm sometimes trying to or more and more I'm just trying to take the stuff that I am genuinely obsessed with like outside of comedy outside of you know wanting to make a statement about anything and and see what it's like to bring that to the page and and work that out on stage and just kind of meld you know the public and personal selves more and more um but that's all that's also the kind of comedy I've always loved has been like really personal but it does get tricky when other people are involved so I don't have any kind of um blanket rules about it or or so I I tend I tend to anonymize yeah the one time I didn't with the the one time I didn't was because it was an amalgam of five guys all of whom (laughs) had like Three out of the five had the same name. And so I made that name the name in the special. And then one of them, who was actually the closest of my friends of that five, emailed me years later and was like, it was really helpful. And I was like, but you said it. Like, you're an idiot. And you said the thing that I said you said. 
Like, yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of that. I think you can see, like, are you just, like, reporting what happened? Or are you holding this person up and being like, what a fucking asshole? You know, well, I, it was I also mean, I'm a sure very generic name as evidenced yeah. by the fact that three of these five dudes had the same name. And I didn't use the last name. But it was yeah. one of those things where he clearly recognized himself in the inciting incident and was like, I thought we were friends. And I was like, mm. there I was mean, that time yeah. I stayed at your place and you argued with me for 90 minutes about why I didn't want to sleep with you. Oh, God. <laughs> Which I didn't put in the show, so yeah. you should feel lucky. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Um, yeah, I have one joke that was like about... It's the dumbest thing in the world, actually. It was just like about when an ex cheated on me, and I've kept it in. And she's been like, I wish that wouldn't be in there. And I'm like, well, it is. <laughs> Lots of people can relate, so sorry. Um, yeah. But it's it's not. There's no details in it or anything. It could literally be anybody. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that I think it makes me feel freer to talk about really personal stuff, to have something that is off limits, Um have certain areas that are off limits. So, for example, my twin brother will never appear in my comedy because he's asked specifically not to be. Yeah. So when I talk about Savage, which is the one about my my mum, people are like, it's so honest, it's so transparent. Like, how do you, how could you be so honest? I'm like, my twin brother is not in that show. <laughs> it's clearly not the whole truth. You know, it's like it, it makes me really like, as you say, like this bad, bad boundary thing, which I think is characteristic of a lot of comedians can mean that you lose sight of what, where, the, where the lines are between your public and your private self. And I think it's really useful for me, at least, to have that distinction of like, well, on stage Alice doesn't have a twin brother. Mm. You know? That's useful to remind me that, that, that it's a construction, that it's art, that, it's, that these stories are incomplete. Because they always are. Any story you tell is incomplete. Yeah, absolutely. Do you find that you lose track of... Um the real story, like the way that it actually happened in your life, the more you tell it, the stage version or the public version? Like, does it rewrite your memory a little bit? A little bit. But I think in part because my the way I do solo shows is so technical, um, not to sound like an absolute wanker, but like it is, like I, I'm, I really think about the structure of, of how yeah. these things work. So the artisanal element of it reminds me that it's craft, not just a expression of selfhood. I think right. that process and focusing on the process and remembering the process um, helps to make that distinction. But yeah, occasionally you'll slip into remembering something that is a story you told. But that's sort of... What it does is more undermine my, my understanding of all memory. <laughs> because right, right. You just go, oh, yeah, actually, it's really unreliable. And the story you tell or the things that you think you remember are not always correct. There was that um, that satanic panic in the 90s where a whole bunch of children remembered, like, horrible um, assault stories from their childhood that had just been planted by psychologists and weren't true at all. And and one of the terrible things about that is that you can't unremember those things. If someone plants a false memory in you through like hypnosis or whatever, by going, do you remember this? Do you remember, do you remember a creepy figure or whatever? You will remember that. And then even if you know it's not true, you'll remember it like it happened. Really? Yeah, it's really hard to unpack that. If, if someone's given you a false memory 
or you've kind of done you know that's why that kind of dream therapy stuff or that kind of uh, un, un, uncovered memory stuff is really dangerous mm-hmm. and is it because even if you can objectively prove like even you have if you have an incident on camera they'll be like but that's not how I remember it that's so interesting I I catch myself sometimes like remembering the exact opposite thing and I mean with like small details so it's like I'll remember, oh, I thought that car was blue, but it was actually orange. Huh. And it's like, and I just think my brain just categorized, because like, those are like opposites on the color wheel or something. And it's yeah. just like, oh, yeah, it's kind of the same. But that that is always wild to me when I realize that. Yeah, um, I think it's useful, like, to remember these things. I'm, I'm really interested in this generation coming up, like my brother's kids and my kid who have... You know how you remember things from photographs from your childhood that you're not sure if it's oh, you yeah. remember the photograph or if you actually remember being there or if the photograph just reminds you of your memory or keeps that memory fresh every time you unshelve it from whatever it is, wherever you keep your memories. But these are kids who are looking at themselves as babies and remembering, yeah. or quote unquote, remembering themselves from the time that they're babies. Like how, how's that going to affect their understanding of the narrative self? I don't know. Yeah, like never undocumented in some ways, too. I was talking to my ex today about, you know, the like what I'm going to do with this podcast, Bad Boundaries. And I have a lot of ideas. But one of it was I was like, listen, if you want to get on and you want to just like tell your story of our relationship at like I won't interrupt or contradict or I'll just like interview you about what that was <laughs> and she was like holy shit yeah I would love that and I was like all right if you want to do it that's um, amazing which yeah it is it is just interesting I don't know if you ever saw there was a show called I think it was called The Affair um, and I liked the first couple of seasons of it because what they would do was revisit um, incidents from different characters points of view Um, and it was just fascinating to see how, you know, people make themselves the heroes or, um, they remember someone being really angry and that person remembers themselves as just, you know, being right about something and quite calm actually. I always wanted to do a a lineup show at a festival that was somebody doing like say four comedians or five comedians. One of them would do 10 minutes and the next person would do 10 minutes and then you'd start to realize that they were discussing the same incident. Yes, do it. Yeah, like my husband this or my wife this and then it's the kid and then like you kind of do the stand-up from the different angle. Um, I think that would be really fun. That's a really great idea. Well, you got to find a family that all does (laughs) stand-up. Start teaching your daughter right now. No, don't. It's a horrible life. Um, (laughs) I was thinking more character comedy, but, you know, we could do it. We could do it. Yeah, I don't think think stand-ups work well together no. necessarily. I forgot about As a characters. Rule, you know, there's always exceptions. I forgot about art. So it's like start raising the family yeah, that yeah, can yeah, all yeah. Just stand up now and then have a horrible event happen that can turn into comedy with time. Intimacy and honesty is too central to your brand now. <laughs> I think it is. So where can people find you online, Intimate Honest Deanne Smith? Oh I mean good luck to you. My website is never up to date. Um but Put my name in. I am the most uh, most common, famous Deanne Smith you're going to find out there. Um, it's Deanne underscore Smith most places, I think. I don't have a TikTok yet. I should, etc. And uh, don't. I don't know when this is coming out, but I'm very excited about this. I will be back in Melbourne this year with a new show. 
Um, oh, wonderful. For the duration of the festival, which, you know, people in Melbourne know exactly when that is. End of March into April. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited. Yeah, me um, too, me too. I always enjoy watching your shows. Excellent. Thank you so much for having tea with me. Oh my God, of course. Thanks for hanging out. Oh, do you know her or do you not? This stop is mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name. And she helps the doffers at every frame. Lousy rifles, all lousy rifles.